You're listening to Money and Meaning, Unlikely Allies, Building New Markets for Impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. Check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. Let's join the conversation. Welcome back to Money and Meaning. I'm your host, Alex Kravitz. Today, we have a a really special episode that we're excited to share with you. As many of you probably know, we recently had our annual flagship conference in San Francisco, SOCAP 19. We had 170-ish sessions and about 700 speakers at the event. But out of that entire group, uh, many of whom we've had on the show previously and others whom we, we hope to have on the show in the future, there were three specifically that we asked if they would be willing to record a conversation for the podcast. And it, it certainly didn't disappoint. Alicia Garza is the co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement and a founder and principal at Black Futures Lab. Rashad Robinson is the president of Color of Change, the nation's largest online civil rights organization. And Javier Torres, who moderates the conversation, is the program director of the Serna Foundation's Thriving Cultures program. They discuss the ways they are all working together to create real, lasting change for communities of color why the conversation needs to move beyond wealth inequality to talk about disparities of power, and their personal stories of why they do the work that they do. So enough out of me. Let's jump into the conversation. Good afternoon, almost, to everybody. This is Javier Torres. I work with the Cerdna Foundation, and I'm really honored to be here with Rashad Robinson and Alicia Garza. Uh, and to get to talk to you a little bit of both about your work and maybe dive some a little bit deeper into some of the questions that were raised in the panel that you just presented, which was really incredible. But I want to start with an informal question, and I'll start with Alicia, and the question is, why do you do the work you do? I do the work I do because I fundamentally want to have a better life for myself, and I want a better life for the people who I love. And I'm really driven by... Um, the experiences that I've had in my life where um, I grew up watching my mom work really, really hard to make sure that I had the things that I needed to live a better life than she did growing up. And my most distinct memory of my mom is that I would wake up sometimes in the middle of the night and my mom would be sitting in the kitchen. It was the only light that was on in the house. And I knew that what she was doing at that kitchen table was trying to figure out a way out of no way. And it was the time that she had to pursue her own dreams after making sure that we could pursue ours. And so I really do this work for women like my mother. And I want for that woman who's sitting at the kitchen table in the middle of the night trying to figure out how to make it work, um, to know that it can work for her and that she can take care of her family and the people that she loves and that she can be powerful in every aspect of her life. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Rashad? You know, it's hard to think about a moment where I wasn't doing some version of what I'm doing now. I think a lot back to um, going into the voting booth with my grandfather. I grew up on eastern Long Island. Um, My family got there through the Great Migration, and so, you know, they've been there for generations. Uh, The farm fields of southern Virginia to the farm fields of eastern Long Island. And I used to remember going into the voting booth with my grandfather, um, my grandpa Charlie, and he would bring me into the voting booth and he'd put me on his shoulders. And it was back to when they had those lever machines. And he would let me pull the lever and he'd ask me to read the names. And my grandfather was a race man. And what I mean by that, for people that don't know what a race man was, is he liked the Mets over the Yankees because he believed that the black man didn't get a fair shot on the Yankees. He, like, everything was, like, seen through a race, a racial justice sort of lens. Um, you know, he would, we would read the box scores and he, he, um, he just had such a really clear view about the world and race relations. It wasn't until after my grandfather died that I found that he couldn't read or write. That the time in the voting booth of reading the names for him was just as much about our time together as it was about him not having an adult having to help him, right? Him actually doing for me a way of him keeping his own sense of pride um, and engagement. But um, I'm 
still struck, and I'm always struck, by in a country that did not value my grandfather, who, as a sharecropper, went into the farm fields at six and never got a formal education, that he valued his ability to participate, to be heard, to be counted, to be visible. Um, and even in a country that did not want that. And sort of the fight um, to um, make our voices heard, to um, change the rules, not just of the policies that would prevent someone like my grandfather from getting an education, someone like my grandmother who um, did so much to um, make the family function um, and make the community, her community function in many ways. Changing the rules that prevented them from having all the opportunities they should have, both the written rules of policy and the unwritten rules of culture, has really just animated me. And it's, it's been part of everything that I've done. But it really does center on sort of, for me, my experience with my family and the experiences in the place where I come from. There was a beautiful article that came out in the Chronicle of Philanthropy about your work with Color of Change. This so weird, someone says a, a beautiful article in the Chronicle. That's okay. Keep yeah, going. yeah. <laughs> it's your story. Yes, 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 yeah, yeah. And they talked about the work that you did organizing as a young person mm -hmm. uh, to hold that Rite Aid accountable to yeah. allowing students mm -hmm. of color to be able to go. And it was all kids. It wasn't just kids of color. Like I mean, they, they, they stopped all kids. It was actually, you know, I lived in a town that was like 10% black. And wow. so we organized for everything, but building multiracial coalitions mm -hmm. had to be part of my real early days, yeah. And you said in that article, you mentioned today, and Alicia sort of reminded us, that let's not confuse presence as power. Uh, it's important that we need to be in the meetings and we need the press, but building, we need to build power too. So I'd love for you to start us off to talk, us about, talk to us about how this is done and how investors can be allies to this work. Um, how can we make sure that people of color have power to change the rules, as Alicia was talking about this morning, and make sure that our society becomes afraid of disappointing our communities? Yeah, well, thank you for that. Um, and yeah, it was really, really kind of the Chronicle to like dig deep, and they actually spent a lot of time talking to a lot of folks and actually following me around a bit, so I was nervous until the article came out. Um, what I'll say is um, it, it does go back to what we view as success what we view as um, winning, right? And that's what I mean by mistaking presence for power. And when we mistake winning as sort of an idea of visibility, a, a black president thinking that we've like solved the problems of politics and race, a uh, black celebrity who becomes deeply famous as thinking that America loves uh, black people as much as they love black culture. Um, then we think we've done something that we actually haven't done. We think we've achieved something that we haven't done. We pat ourselves on the back um, for, for quote-unquote progress that actually hasn't been achieved. Um, and so changing the rules, right, has to be part of what we do, and that has to be the metric of success. Uh, you know, since 1980, right, we have seen um, deep changes in all of the metrics and indicators of success, right, from black-white income to school integration to so many of these sort of things that um, are really centered on the rules. While at the same time, we have more black millionaires than we've ever had. We have more black people on TV than we ever have. We have more black people elected to public office than ever has, but the disparities have changed. And so, you know, how do you make sense of that, right? And if we only keep a metric that is centered on some idea of visibility, some idea of getting shout outs from the stage, from, from having you, your stories talked about, um, and so when I, um, you know, talk about the work of translating presence to power, it is recognizing that presence is not a bad thing. That black president is not a bad thing. I, you know, was at that inauguration like a lot of us crying. You know, I will like dip it low to, uh, you know, to the best of the, the you know, of our, of our pop stars to, you know, um, and celebrate black culture in um, the deepest ways. But recognizing that presence, if it is not a metric, a stop on the road to power, then it actually works against us. It makes people believe that something has been achieved that it hasn't achieved, and it makes people think that progress has happened when in fact the very opposite may have happened. 
Lisa, same question. Uh, you know, really thinking about how our investors going to be allies to the building of power for this Black communities, Indigenous communities, and communities of color. You know, one of the things that I started off talking about in this podcast was that I do this work for myself. And I think one of the things that we don't talk about often enough is that um, investing for good can't be charity work. It can't be a thing that we do because it makes us feel good. Um, and that it can't be a thing that we do that is rooted in being altruistic. The reality is every single one of us um, does the things that we do because we want something better for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And if we're not driven by wanting something better for ourselves, we're not actually being honest about why we do what we do. So to me, when we talk about how investors can be allies uh, to communities of color and communities who are marginalized from the economy, I think we have to have an honest conversation about what's in it for investors. And for me, I think that what's in it for investors um, is a both a real understanding of how the economy functions, understanding that if you want to do good, uh, that one thing that you can do to be able to do real good is to change the way that the economy functions to lock out certain communities so that there can be investors and people who have uh, control over uh, increasing concentrations of wealth. We talked today in our panel about how you cannot have wealth without having poverty. Uh, and that the whole structure of our economy creates a dynamic where because we are extracting from marginalized communities, uh, and concentrating wealth in smaller and smaller groupings of people, uh, that we're essentially locking people out from making the decisions over their own lives that we claim we want them to be able to make. Uh, when we are investing in social good projects, like uh, making sure that women in a small village in Colombia, right, um, can make their crafts and make money off of their own crafts, that's good. That's a good thing that you do for someone else. But if you're not also investing in making sure that those very same women are able to make decisions over their lives and the lives of their families, if you're not making sure that those very same women are in control of deciding how their economy will function and how to distribute wealth in such a way where it's equitable, um, then we're only going halfway. Uh, and so the best way for investors to be allies is to be committed to changing the rules of the economy that gives them an unfair advantage in the first place. If you really want to do good and you want to equalize the playing field, then in some ways you have to be able to acknowledge that you too are part of the dynamics that are going to continue to keep those women poor, that are going to continue to uh, lock out communities from making decisions over their own lives. So uh, that's the number one uh, tenet for me of allyship is uh, understanding what's in it for you, <laughs> um, but also understanding that if you really want to go all the way, um, that you have to not only change the rules, but you have to transform uh, the process by which rules are made in the first place. It's really great. I was going to bring this point up because you, you did talk about it a little bit. Um, and one of the things I struggle with working in philanthropy are the clear tensions that we all that you all mentioned in this morning's panel that the need for philanthropy exists because of the way in which people make money in our society. Um, and I often find this that myself asking uh, our board and my colleagues, you know, how does this concept relate to asking investors what they, how much do you need to make so that you're compelled to give it away versus how about you just make less and have a more uh, sustainable and uh, well-doing business from the very beginning as opposed to needing to exploit communities in order to generate wealth and then make yourself feel better by giving it away. So would love for you to think to talk a little bit more about the shifting of the paradigm of the unraveling of the way that our economy is built on individual decisions that mostly white, cisgendered, heteronormative, able-bodied men have made throughout our history. Um, and how can we really get people to imagine um, a, a different way of, of organizing or formulating this economy? Well, first, I always start with vision. And when I think about a world that is more just and more equitable, where people have the things that they need to be able to live in dignity, um, I don't imagine a world where there is philanthropy that is giving away money to nonprofit organizations to solve problems that the government should be solving. Um, I don't envision a world where 
wealthy people are tithing a small percentage of the wealth that they extracted from me and my family and the people who I love um, in order to uh, invest in projects that make them feel better. And I don't say that to uh, denigrate any of the projects that people are involved in, but I do, I do want us to kind of start with the question of well, what does the world that we want to live in actually look like and where are we placed in it? Uh, I think that part of what we have to center here in this conversation is that um, to really make the kinds of changes that we purport to want to make, we should be thinking about, some of us should be thinking about working our, our way out of wealth and working our way out of a job. Uh, I don't imagine in the world that I want to live in um, that I'm going to have to work every single day from the second I wake up until the second I go to sleep uh, to make sure that black people are powerful in politics. In the world that I want to live in, black people are powerful in politics. And what that means is that some people um, are doing different things, right, and are playing different roles than they're playing right now. And then the question for me becomes, how do we get there? Uh, so the thing that I, I grapple with a lot when I'm thinking about kind of what is the world that I want to live in is this tension that happens when we start to talk about where change comes from. Um, I have always believed that the people who are closest to the problem uh, are the ones who have uh, the most perspective on what the solution should be. Um, and sometimes in my work, that's not me, right? There are ways in which I am very close to the fire, and there are ways in which I'm actually farther away from it. Uh, and one of the tensions that we deal with uh, in Black communities in particular when we're talking about change um, is that, you know, we have invested in a series of stories uh, that keep the powerful powerful and that keep people who are not powerful powerless. Um, and one of those stories is that people with wealth are the main drivers of the solutions for poverty. Um, the reality is there is no incentive for people with wealth to disrupt how poverty happens because if they were to genuinely do that, um, then they would not have wealth. Uh, and that is a tricky and hard conversation for us to have. Right. Um, and it's 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 interesting because a few years ago, if we were to have this conversation, people would imagine you in like khakis in the jungles. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, trying to start a revolution. Um, but I think right now where we are is having a real conversation about where is this economy as it stands going to lead us. Uh, there is no prospect uh, if we allow the economy to keep functioning as it does. Uh, for increasing a level of security here in America or throughout the world. Um, there is no prospect for that. And in fact, allowing the economy to continue to function as it does under the rules that it is structured under uh, really leads to more insecurity. It leads to less safety. Uh, it leads to more destruction. And as we uh, certainly are becoming more and more aware of, uh, it leads to a future where we uh, may not have a planet to live on. <laughs> Um, and so to me, I think part of um, the honest conversation that we have to have uh, is that um, it's not people with wealth who have the best solutions for how to disrupt poverty. It is the people who are living in poverty, who are living under the, the, the boot right, of, of those who um, have the wealth to give away um, that are closest to the solutions for how we need to change what's happening right now. And I'll, I'll just conclude by saying that um, when it comes to our democracy, one of the greatest threats to our democracy right now uh, is that the people who are in power and the people who are powerful um, and the people who are wealthy, right, are the ones who are shaping the rules about how a democracy functions. They are the ones who are shaping the rules about who can and cannot participate. Um, if people in poverty were able to participate in, in the, the decisions that impacted their lives, uh, wealthy people and their practices would be disrupted in a very serious way. Um, and so there's an interest, right, in keeping those folks who are closest to the problem away from being able to shape the rules. Um, and so I, I would say that one of the things that we've got to pay attention to right now if we're really trying to invest in social good, is to invest in the ability and the capacity of communities to change the rules and to change the way that the rules are made. Um, and if we're not doing that, 
then what we're doing is basically tinkering with the Titanic, right? We're rearranging the, the chairs on the Titanic as the Titanic is sinking. Um, and, you know, as, as global warming and climate change continues, uh, uh, that Titanic is, sure, in rising sea waters, but still it is sinking. And um, the only way to save it, if it's possible to save it, is not to tinker with it, but it's to figure out how do we build a new boat. And we talked a lot about building political power. You all talked about that in today's panel. Justin Denver presenting on the Thriving Cultures program strategy at the Grantmakers in the Arts Conference. Uh, and our strategy is entitled Radical Imagination for Racial Justice. Mm. Um, we're really, we were with colleagues from the NDN Collective that's doing a lot of organizing in indigenous communities, uh, with Ash, the uh, co-executive director of the Highlander Center in Tennessee. Mm. And one of the audience members asked the panelists, um, how are they contextualizing their work in this current political moment? Um, and the response from our colleagues I was really glad about because what they reminded the audience is that the power building work that many of us are doing uh, does not stand in opposition to this one particular administration. Um, that there hasn't been an administration throughout history that's been good to communities of color, to women or indigenous communities. And so um, I'm really curious, given the campaigns that you run that are both about resistance and power building and imagining for the future. You know, you said that um, we can't change the rules with just ideas. So while imagination we know is important, I'd love for you to dig a little bit deeper about what does it look like to make sure that we have our people in motion? Um, and what does it mean to really be able to value the work that's happening that has really nothing to do with this particular federal administration in this moment, but is about the arc of history that communities of color have been driving since the founding of this country? Yeah, and so, I mean, the quick thing on this, like, administration, you know, I heard a lot um, sort of right after Trump got elected about how, um, you know, how horrible this was. Um, but then people started building the same type of responses that they build to all situations. I do think that it is important to recognize that many of the previous, um, at least in the last several several um, administrations, have been change candidates, and this is and Donald Trump is a change the rules candidate. Mm -hmm. And the reason why that's important, important distinction, is because um, Obama, Bush, those folks, you know, I'm. This is not telling a fairy tale about the Bush administration. Dick Cheney, you know, made want advanced policies that made people poor and wanted to criminalize poverty. He made advanced policies that made people have to migrate and then criminalize migration, right? But changing the rules is a different type of project, right? Because, um, you know, we may have disagreed with the politics of a previous housing and urban development secretary or a previous mm -hmm. education secretary, but we knew they knew something about housing and urban development or education. And so changing the rules means you change all the conventions, the sort of understanding about how the levers we pull to make change happen. And Donald Trump has done that, and I think we should take that in some ways as a gift because it, 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 it disrupts magical thinking about how change actually happens. He's in many ways called the bluff on these sort of ideas of these rules and norms, that there was some sort of referee there that was going to step in at some point and say, no, you can't steal a Supreme Court seat. No, you can't put someone in place that's going to, you know, that has like, has all these charges of abuse on women. No, you can't, like, he's called the bluff. No, you can't have a video with you saying something and then you look us in the eye and say you didn't say it. And like, and then the media is reporting on it like there's two sides, right? So I think all of that is really important to remember. But yes, in the context of changing the rules, we have to fundamentally think about a couple of things. And so this is sort of how we think about it at Color of Change. First and foremost is that people don't experience issues, they experience life. That the forces that hold people back are deeply integrated. That a racist criminal justice system requires a racist media culture to keep it alive, to keep it thriving. Um, political inequality follows economic inequality. That and those things oftentimes to collude to create a hostile climate, and that right is in essence why we have to build power because racism shapeshifts itself. Um, 
you know, and that what is once, you know, voter ID laws was previously Jim Crow. What, you know, Jim Crow becomes mass incarceration. These things are deeply integrated in terms of how, um, how it operationalized itself in people's lives. And so we have a strategy of respond, build, pivot, and scale. And what I mean by that is giving, recognizing from an organizing perspective is that we have to give people real things to do that impact their lives. I can't stay up in the sky on sort of structural reforms if people are getting hurt and harmed by police. I have to give people a clear way to deal with that immediate change and that is part of sort of the organizing efforts of giving people a clear and strategic thing to do. Now, once again, we can't mistake presence for power, so we can't give people like crazy things to do, right? I, I, I always oftentimes make the joke that you will never see a campaign from Color of a Change that says, um, tell Mitch McConnell to stand up for affirmative action, <laughs> right? Like there's no amount of petitions that we could sign, no amount of like showing up for a rally that Mitch McConnell would suddenly care about affirmative action unless affirmative action fundamentally changed in some deep ways that no longer was affirmative action as we knew it, right? And so recognizing that, the response is giving people a clear thing. You know, something happens, finding the right target, moving people in motion to those actions. Sandra Bland is found hanging in a Waller County jail cell. We mobilize people to call on the Justice Department. We recognize all the ways in which um, we have to engage the local DA. We, and next, after response, we build energy. So now we are working to bring other organizations in motion with us around this single demand, build energy, try to move a media narrative about what happens, get private investigators to go down to Waller to research and study what happens and publish stories so that we help provide more undergird and context to what's happened. And we discover in that process that the bail bonds and the judge and the sheriff are all kind of in cahoots in a, in a weird way that has created a hostile climate, that Sandra Bland was one of many black people that were given $5,000 bails um, for traffic infractions. And part of that was why she was in jail over the weekend while her family was trying to pull together money that they should have never had to pull together. And so now we've done the response. And then we've done the bill. And now it's time for us to do the pivot with people, right? Because if we just leave people, even if we had gotten justice for Sandra Bland, that's like whack-a-mole, that game at the carnival where something pops up. It would have been deeply meaningful to us as an organization, to her family, to everyone, but it would have not helped the next Sandra Bland. Uh, it would not have done anything for the system. And so we, we do the pivot, right? And then we pivot to being able to take that energy of people who are now activated in motion, who want justice for Sandra, but we've been helping them recognize how the Sandra is not um, an anomaly, but part of, but a victim of of structures and systems that were are delivering as they were designed to. Mm -hmm. And so then we pivot and we move our folks into motion around bail reform, both you know, both locally and nationally around the country, helping people recognize that a we've got to deal with the fact that a lot of people are making money off of the pain and suffering of black and brown people, right? The fact of the matter is, is that bail is big business. It's a $2.1 billion industry backed largely by major insurance companies. The local bail bonds companies are um, in many ways um, economic fronts for actually deep corporate power that is incentivized, lobbying to keep this in place. Bankers, which is one of the largest backers of the bail bond industry, says nothing about the bail bond industry on their main page. They talk about insuring people's homes in Florida and other sort of places that are victims of the choices we've made with our climate. And so all of that to say, um, we pivot. And then over time, we scale that energy, right? We make bail reform, a litmus test for any district attorney that wants to get our votes. We um, help to you know, connect the issues around bail, not just as an issue of criminal justice, but an issue of economic justice, an issue of voter freedom and voter power, the ways in which fines and fees can keep people locked out of actually getting their rights to vote restored. Because once again, people don't experience issues, they experience life, and our opponents are deeply 
focused on integrating all these things to create a hostile climate for us, if we are not building power that disrupts and dismantles those systems, then the systems will just change, reshape, refocus to keep the status quo in place. And like I said on the panel, to keep some people artificially on top and some people artificially on the bottom. And the word artificial is deeply important to this because because poverty and injustice is manufactured. It is a consequence of choices we have made, not of people's ability or of uh, the lack of brilliance or, or innovation in communities. It is a choice that has been made. And so in order to disrupt that, we actually have to have people in motion. But to have people in motion, you have to give people and provide for people the right things to do. And then you have to open source it. Right, because it's not a top-down thing. And so people's energy and response, people's leadership and engagement should dictate and drive sort of where things go next. And every you know, every year I can point to many different amazing on paper ideas I've had about how people things we could do where we actually didn't have people in motion. And, you know, one of the things I love most about leading Color of Change is that it's a constant learning experience, is that my assumptions are disrupted, my, um, sometimes my very closely held opinions about what we should do next are disrupted uh, because people will show up or not. And you actually can't win without people in motion. And I think, and just to, just to close, really on you know, a little bit more about what Alicia was saying around sort of the ways in which um, philanthropy and capital and all these things can create some false incentive structures. You know, over the last 30, 40 years, as more, uh, as philanthropy has grown and can sometimes dictate the terms of how organizations run and function, um, dictate the program plans. Um, every organization needs a strategic plan done by the same set of funders who are incentivized to, um, who are sometimes subsidiaries of, of companies that are um, creating the rules that in many ways have harmed our communities in the first place. And so we are incentivized to like, work with these groups, we go to them, we, we, we build our all of these sort of like models and charts and graphs that um, are, are, are part of the sort of dance that you have to do. Um, and then, you know, you see where the money actually goes, right? And it ends up going to a lot of ideas, right? 300 scientists for climate justice instead of actually recognizing that if you don't fund people, you'll never protect the planet. If people are not powerful, then the planet will not be saved. Um, I'll just end with a quick story. The quick story is, it comes from Obama's book, um, Dreams from My Father. And the story is, is right, he talks about when he was um, an organizer, like, years ago, so this is not new, right? He was working for NYPIRG. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is not to call out NYPIRG. They, like, I'm sure doing great work. But he was working for NYPIRG, and this is in his book. Um, and he was um, in Harlem, um, and he was at Columbia, and he, and he was living in New York City, and he, um, and they hired him as an organizer. They sent him into Harlem. This is, like, late 80s, 90s, late 80s. And he, um, they had him knocking on people's doors, encouraging black people to recycle. And he says it in sort of a kind of like flippant way in the book almost. At least that's how I took it. Um, and so imagine what people were actually dealing with in during that period of time in Harlem, black people. And that you're showing up to people's doors and asking them to recycle. As if black people recycling or not recycling has anything to do with climate change and what multinational corporations were doing to pollute. As if that's the first thing that those folks had, the problems they had to deal with. We weren't asking people what they wanted, but we were like kind of telling people what they needed to do. Um, and so part of all of this work around getting people in motion 
is to Alicia's point, recognizing that people closest to the problem are closest to the solution. And if we don't build infrastructure, organizations, metrics, vehicles that actually allow us to respond and recognize that and engage that, then we won't win. Um, unless we think winning is something different. Great. So um, it was interesting at the end of the panel, and I think there's a tendency in financial markets, uh, and this is my final question, so I'm going to give Alicia the final word, and Rashad, I'll ask you to respond in a moment. Um, you know, I, I listened a lot to Adrian Marie Brown, who talks about the, our sense of urgency is part of the problem that got us to where we are. Um, and yet, in financial markets, we continue to say, well, so what's the solution? What's the one thing that you can do? And you both offered sort of recommendations, but also highlighted with Rodney on the panel that it's, there's no one single lever here. Uh, and so paraphrasing, because I didn't get to, I didn't write quickly enough, uh, but Rashad, you said, you know, it's important for people in power and for these organizations to recognize that times are changing um, and that the sands are going to shift beneath them uh, and that the, the expediency thinking is not going to continue to serve them. And Alicia, you said, you know, one recommendation was for every dollar that people invest to make themselves more money because we have to deal with people's personal interests to simultaneously invest another dollar in organizations and people that are changing the rules. Um, so because I'm not a fan of the original question, uh, I'm going to paraphrase from one of our colleagues, uh, Fabiana Rodriguez at the Center for Cultural Power. I'm curious as we wrap up our conversation today, for listeners, Rashad, what do you want them, oh, and before I do, I should say my recommendation of what people can do is your job is to be an ally, and the only way to do that well is to start with your own education. Um, you know, to be able to go and take trainings from places like Race Forward and the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond and fundamentally understand the historic tenets of how we've arrived at where we are. But I'm going to rephrase the question and I'm going to ask you to sort of share your thoughts uh, from Fabiana's statement of what do you want people to think, feel, and do after they hear our conversation? Well, I want people to act. I want people to join Color of Change. Um, I want people to uh, join the Black Futures Lab. Um, I want people to join organizations in their local communities um, that speak to issues because this is, these are not um, exercises in individuality and exercises in our own personal brand building. This is about being in motion and accountable to institutions, to people, to movements that are bigger than ourselves. Um, so I want people to do that first. Um, I do want people to get educated. I think all of that is important, but I think education through action is the best way. I feel like I learn more every single day by being in motion, um, by actually having to do. Um, and I think that that is really important. And then the final thing, you know, at Color of Change for people who are listening, like we need doers, donors, and door openers. Um, you know, I need people that are willing to take action, to, to join us, you know, to join a local squad, to, um, you, know, uh, you know, join local campaign work, engage with us on the electoral side of the work. I need folks that are willing to open doors, right? Far too often, there's an inside and outside game at play. And because of structural exclusion, we naturally fall on the outside when there are folks on the inside that could help us move campaigns quicker, um, make change in, in easier ways. Um, and then finally, this work takes money. And I think a lot of times, um, you know, for um, black organizations in particular, for organizations of color, we are operate, operating on cents on the dollar. Uh, you know, I'm constantly having to prove the effectiveness. You talked about the Chronicle story, and that's great and that's lovely, but the fact of the matter is, is that I still have to, even after, even after um, the recognition for the campaign work, still have to do the work to um, push back on the idea that there is some sort of magical, smart white guy in the back that's making decisions or helping us think through um, this work. And so um, I need folks to be uncomfortable and be uncomfortable in their support of this organization because, like I said on the panel, the world will look different 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now. And the question for everyone is, is where did they invest? What did they do? And black people need institutions that are big and powerful if we are going to face down 
big and powerful institutions that have harmed us, whether they be Facebook, whether they be the government, whether they be other major corporations or media outlets like Fox News. You, um, you, can't, you can't win those campaigns. We can win those campaigns with a lot less money, um, but um, black people, black institutions, organized people are a force multiplier for change, and so invest in that. So before you answer, Alicia, I do want to piggyback on, on two things that I think are really critical. I promised I would cuss in during this podcast, so I'm going to do that now. You know, one of the things that I think about when we implement our strategy at CERDNA is white men have gotten money and gotten to fuck it up their whole lives and still keep getting more money to do on a whatever napkin, they want to do. Walk in a napkin and walk out with the money. And so how do we begin to reframe these conversations of risk, as was raised on the panel earlier this morning, to really ensure that, that communities of color and people of color have the same opportunity to fuck it up, learn, and, and do it again? But that's bullshit, too, because here's... I mean, that's true, and it's partially bullshit, because even when it's not a risk... Because mm-hmm. it's actually, there is yes. no risk. These yes. Are all, these are all yes. Yes. So, socially constructed yeah. risks. Yes. Uh, but the other challenge that I often, and I just in a memo to our board sort of raised, mm-hmm. this idea about, um, you know, foundations are often talking about the perceived risk, reputational and financial risk that we supposedly take on, uh, which I have, could be a whole other conversation. But the charge that I put to the board was this, when we think about the investment in the culture change that we require, is that... Hindsight is 2020. We all revere Rosa Parks and Harriet Tubman as women that um, were participating in the change that we all get to partially benefit from now. Um, but what foundation at this point in time is willing to invest in those kinds of illegal actions? Because they were illegal actions. That is the risk that we are responsible for taking on if we are going to exist. Um, so I wanted to share those two pieces. And Alicia, I just want to pivot to you for the last word about what do you want people to think, feel, and do? Well, um, I want people to think that, um, particularly investors, I want investors to think that their job and their goal is to work themselves out of a job. Um, I don't see a scenario with um, investors or people with wealth that you are going to... um, create the change that you think you want to make um, without fundamentally acknowledging um, that as you're doing good, um, there is still harm that you are perpetuating. Um, What I want people to do um, is to invest in organizing and to invest in power building. And I want to say a couple of things about that. You know, when it comes to philanthropy or investors who want to invest in good, um, it's a lot easier to invest in businesses. Mm -hmm. It's a lot easier to invest in initiatives where um, the outcomes are numerical, right? And they're very clear. So if I invest a million dollars in this uh, microenterprise, I am expecting a return of this much, Mm -hmm. right? That level of change is very clear and present to people. They can see it, they can feel it, they can taste it and touch it. But organizing is the kind of change that is not that. And so the risk, right, is that the return is not immediate. Um, The return sometimes is uh, numerical, but most of the time um, the return is culture shift. Um, which helps to hold and contain um, other shifts in structures. And the reality is that there is a risk in investing in long-term change. Uh, But the other risk of it, to be frank, is that if that change is successful, what does it mean for those institutions, right? If we are able to create the world that Rashad and I have talked about, What does it mean for the existence of philanthropy? What does it mean for the existence of impact investors? It actually means that possibly you won't exist, right? And we all know that in these these houses, right, there is the do-good side of the house and there is the business-as-usual side of the house. And that's the conversation we're not having. And so what I want people to do is to say um, that we are going to use the do-good side of the house 
um, to really invest in systems change. Mm -hmm. And as a part of that, that we understand that in investing in systems change, that part of what we are investing in is working ourselves out of a job. And that we are committed to sitting in that uncomfortable place because we want the world to change the way that we say we want it to change. What I want people to feel um, is that this change is good for them. That this is not something that you're doing that's good for somebody else and it makes you feel good at the end of the day, but that this change is actually good for you. Um, if we're all being very honest, um, none of us benefit in the long term from living in a world that is so deeply unequal. And none of us would say that we want to contribute to a world that is so deeply unequal. And so what I want people to feel is the alignment between what we say we want and what we do every day in the world. Um, I want people to feel like this level of discomfort that I have around really pulling apart these onion layers as we talk about um, is a part of a necessary process to change my life too for the better. Um, and I think that if all of those things combine, we can actually achieve the change that we want. If we combine investing in organizing and power building, if we combine uh, the vision that we have for our lives and really root ourselves in it as opposed to doing for other people, um, and if we are willing to face the things that are very scary about reaching the world that we want to live in, um, I actually believe that we will get closer to moving the needle. That's great. And to put a, a slight finer point on the piece that you mentioned, especially as I think about philanthropy that likes to spend its 5% and then break its back, patting itself uh, and, and saying congratulations to itself for what it gives away, is recognizing, as you said, that for each dollar we invest in, in making money, that we need to do a dollar in the change. And in systems like philanthropy and financial markets, <coughs> we do 95% of our portfolio in making ourselves more. And 5% is what we feel good about when we quote unquote do good. Yeah. Now, I would be remiss without giving you an opportunity to do a shameless plug because it's important for people to be able to learn about the work that you do and figure out how they can invest and support in your work. So Alicia, when people want to find out about Black Futures Lab and figure out how to collaborate and invest in your genius, where do they go? Well, you should go to blackfutureslab.org where you will learn all about the work that we do to make black communities powerful in politics. We fundamentally believe that the problems that are facing black communities are complex and their solutions require innovation and experimentation. And most of all, they require independent black political power. And so what we do to that end is we collect relevant and recent data on black communities in America as we are right now. Uh, we build the capacity of black communities to design and win and implement policy that changes our lives in cities and states. Uh, and we educate, activate, and motivate black voters uh, to be able to build the kind of political power we need to change the rules and change who's making the rules. So if you want to learn more about what we do, go to blackfutureslab.org. You'll see some of the results of the largest survey of black people in America in 154 years with our two reports that we've released. One is called More Black Than Blue. The other is called When the Rainbow is Not Enough. And it's looking at the data through the lens of people who are lesbian and gay and bisexual in this country. More Black Than Blue is looking at the data from the lens of the respondents who are the most politically active. Uh, our next report is coming out in November and it will be looking at the data through the lens of gender identity. And so you'll better be able to understand what black people who are cisgender, transgender, and gender non-conforming think, feel, and experience in the world and what it is that we want to see for our futures. Wonderful. Thanks for shots and question. Colorofchange.org um, is the site and you know at Color of Change we champion um, and build the type of campaigns that change policies and practices that hold black people back and move forward solutions that change the rules for everyone. And so at Color of Change, you'll find the opportunity to take action on a wide range of campaigns from um, you know, the economy to our justice system to uh, voting freedom to corporate accountability and tech accountability and education and so much more, really centered both national and local at giving people the most strategic thing that they can do to take action with black people as the force multipliers for change, but with their allies of every race engaged. 1.7 million members 
um, and with a network of local squads that is growing. And then we have our Voting While Black program, which is um, our electoral arm through the Color of Change PAC. And the Voting While Black program is um, just a really exciting project that is a, focused on turning out and engaging what the industry and in voting calls low propensity voters, but what we call high potential voters. And it allows us to engage um, voters back in 2016. We, um, through 14,000 volunteers, engaged well over 3 million voters um, in a number of states around the country, mobilizing people um, to the polls through peer-to-peer -to -peer text messaging, door knocking, and phone calls. Um, starting at district attorney races, which was really focused, once again, as trying to find the most strategic lever to change and problems that are, seem intractable. And then the final thing you'll see from Color of Change in the next couple of weeks, besides all the work we're doing in tech accountability, is a really seminal report on crime procedures, which are the kind of law and order TV shows. We worked with USC for about a year at really looking at all the crime procedures on TV, their representation of race, their representation of black people, really with a deep recognition that in order to change the rules, we have to change the narrative. And there are a whole set of narrative vehicles that perpetuate a whole set of harms. And until we disrupt those things, until we disrupt and change the way in which our story is told, we won't actually be able to advance the type of solutions that will help all of us. And so visit, visit us at colorofchange.org, and you can follow me at Rashad Robinson on Twitter and elsewhere. Great. Thank you both for making time to share your brilliance and to share your knowledge and genius with us. If you want to learn more about Certain Foundation's work in our Thriving Cultures program, you can go to surdna.org. Uh, we are a social justice foundation that centers racial justice in our work uh, with a particular focus on inclusive economies, sustainable environments, thriving cultures, and our sister program, the Anders Family Fund, that works on criminal justice reform specifically for young people of color and uh, LGBTQ or gender nonconforming youth that have been engaged with the criminal justice system and ensuring long-term reform uh, for those uh, young people and their voice in it. If you want to learn more about the conversation that this interaction inspired, I believe there'll be a link on the website to a video of the panel today and encourage you both to learn about Black Futures Lab and Color of Change. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Money and Meaning. We have a bunch of great resources that they mentioned during the conversation or that are otherwise relevant to the discussion that we'll post on our blog at socialcapitalmarkets.net, including the report that Alicia mentioned, More Black Than Blue, um, some of Rashad's writing in, in The Guardian and the, the profile of him in The Chronicle of Philanthropy. Um, we'll also link to the video from their panel at SOCAP 19, where Rashad and Alicia were in conversation with Felicia Wong from the Roosevelt Institute and Rodney Foxworth from Bali. You can also find that panel, along with a bunch of the other great sessions from SOCAP 19, on our YouTube channel at SOCAP Markets. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please share it with a friend and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It's much appreciated. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach out to me at moneyandmeaningpodcast at gmail.com. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. You've been listening to Money and Meaning, unlikely allies building new markets for impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are heard. To learn more, check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at SoCapMarkets. Thanks for listening.